Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine, where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams, a platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good evening and welcome to episode 28 of the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. This podcast is supported by SOS Coffee coffee which we sell in Guatemala to fund medical missions for underserved communities and to support free CPR and bleeding control courses across the country. And that's the topic of tonight's podcast, medical missions, what to expect, when to do them, how to plan them, uh, some of the pitfalls, some of the pearls that we've picked up along the way uh, and some of the key terminology that you might come across. So some examples of when we might employ a medical mission could be for an underserved community where there's a particular public health problem. For example, underserved tropical community in Guatemala that are suffering from um, outbreaks of Zika, chikungunya, dengue, hemorrhagic dengue. Perhaps for refugees up on the US-Mexican border, refugees arriving from Iraq and Syria and entering Europe. Uh, or could be vulnerable or displaced populations such as those evacuated prior to or caught up in the recent volcanic eruption in Guatemala. So you you might come across terminology such as medical mission, community outreach project, remote clinic, public health initiatives. There's a range of terminology which may be an independent initiative or may be linked to an ongoing humanitarian operation. So when and where... We've mentioned it briefly, generally for vulnerable communities, communities that are already suffering from uh, malnutrition, a lack of education, disease outbreaks, poverty. Um, And the idea is to address the public health problems or try and strengthen the community to promote resilience so that they are more able to resist the onset of natural disasters, whether that be floods, landslides, volcanic eruptions, armed conflict. So they're more resilient, they're able to cope uh, and therefore not suffer the impact of becoming displaced, etc. So triggers, what, what may trigger the need for a medical mission or a humanitarian response? It could be an increase in the morbidity or mortality rates above the established national threshold in the case of a large-scale emergency, complex humanitarian emergency, a disaster. Could be an increase or a heightened um, under-five mortality rate, disease outbreaks, disaster response or disaster recovery, depending on when the environment is safe to move into uh, and the search and rescue operation is halted. Or it may be um, a faith group, a church group, religious group, a humanitarian group, uh, philanthropists who have identified a particular group in need and wish to help them to take them out of poverty, to strengthen their resiliency. There's a whole host of reasons why different groups might select 
certain communities to provide health support. So the, the objectives of a medical mission are generally to support an ongoing governmental public health initiative or any gaps in the provision of public health, to identify the local epidemiology, which we can then use as a springboard for future planning or communication to partner organisations, disease prevention, health promotion, management of chronic illness, which after trauma, crush injuries, um, crush syndrome, etc., is, is one of the biggest problems that we manage in the post-disaster phase or the disaster response and the recovery phase is exacerbation of chronic illness. We might also employ medical missions to look at capacity building, to empower communities, to develop their capability to mitigate the impact of a disaster or to respond to it. So we want, in general, to reduce vulnerability and increase resilience. Who might be involved? Who might initiate, trigger, coordinate or plan a medical mission? Could be local, national or international NGOs, depending on the scale. Faith groups, EMS agencies, local or international. Community groups, as we mentioned, philanthropists. The state might request support or target a medical mission in a particular area, often with medical students, or humanitarian humanitarian aid organisations. So what do they contain? What do they consist? We may take a mixed group of healthcare professionals. It really depends on a needs assessment, but it it might look like this. A primary care team, uh, which can diagnose and manage acute illness, prepare management plans or care plans for chronic illness, provide vaccination programs, look at some minor interventions, wound management, possibly even surgical interventions if we take appropriate specialists. And education is the big thing. At the root, at the core of a lot of community problems is running in parallel to the poverty, the education or lack of. So healthcare providers, whilst the primary care clinic is going on concurrently in the background or a day prior to or afterwards may provide education on mosquito-borne illness prevention, the use of um, mosquito nets, insect repellent, long sleeves, avoidance of sandals, etc. Hand hygiene, dental hygiene, respiratory hygiene, um, reduction of respiratory illness from the use of internal stoves. There's an awful lot of respiratory illness in some of the communities in Guatemala because they all live in the same room in um, corrugated iron or mud huts in some cases in remote communities. They all live and cook and bathe in the same room and so they've got the stove on the go constantly to boil water, to make soups and boil their vegetables Uh, and all of the all the toxic fumes that are coming off that are retained within the dwelling and are inhaled by the youngsters. And so there's a quite a high incidence of respiratory problems and, and COPD later on in life. Water disinfection. A lot of communities are taking their water from unclean sources, from stagnant pools, from contaminated rivers, whether it be from feces, animal dung, um, insecticides, pesticides, running off some of the farms upstream. 
So we can talk to them about how to disinfect, how to filter, how to use bleach or household bleach chlorine to disinfect their water. And then diet and nutrition. And it's important to bear in mind the cultural context. It's all well and good arriving on scene and talking about paleo diets or grass-fed beef or vegetarian diets. But the advice on nutrition needs to be in the context of what's available to the communities. Not only what's available, but what they're able to purchase given their economic situation. So uh, we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. We've got to tailor the diet to suit their needs. So it might just be a case of adjusting the macros. Certainly, we've identified in some medical missions that kids are falling asleep at school and they're falling behind at school and their teeth are falling out, all because Coca-Cola and coffee are cheaper than water. So they're they're drinking Coca-Cola late at night um, and they're not sleeping, they're staying up playing all night. When they get to school, they're absolutely shattered. They're falling asleep, they're not learning anything and it becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, Just a a simple case of providing an eco-filter, a simple water filter so they can get their container of river water, put it through the ceramic filter. It's cheap, probably lasts a year or two um, and far better for the overall health and well-being and the education of the kid than litres of Coca-Cola or drinking coffee late at night. So unless you've deployed on this kind of mission before, it can be quite daunting or eye-opening when you arrive and we need to prepare well. Medical missions can fail at the first hurdle if they're not well prepared. We need to ask a few questions before we even start considering planning and coordinating resources and people and travel dates. So keep it simple. Ask the following eight questions and execute on them. What is happening? What is happening in a given community? Why do we want to go there? What is the need? What is important to us? And more importantly, what is important to the community? What changes can we make? What changes will they be susceptible to and to making and implementing? What can be done? Perhaps there are issues that are way beyond the scope of our capability, whether it be technically or financially or culturally. And so what we want to do might not be feasible on the ground. So we need to look at, with the community leaders and our local partners, what can actually be done? And then what will be done? What is our priority? If there's two or three three things that could be done, what is our focus to direct our energy and our financial resources? So what will be done? And then how will it be done? Who do we take? What equipment do we take? How do we communicate it? What's the timescale? How do we introduce it? What resources are required? How do we source them? A key component of medical missions is understanding that the humanitarian principles, including equality. What we expect in the Western world should be the same standard of care that we provide in remote area settings. It's not acceptable to step outside of your scope of practice just because you're in a remote area and try sexy invasive interventions. And equally, it's not appropriate to give people medications which have expired or are damaged, or that you wouldn't use yourself in your own practice. So what resources are are needed to do it? And then plan it. Plan it, coordinate it well, 
implement, execute, and right at the end, most importantly, is reflection. Reflection feedback. Feedback to the participants, to the donor organization, to your sponsors, to the community leaders, and to the community, so that we understand how our findings linked in with the research. Did we achieve our aim? Were there any gaps? Um, Are there any learning points for us in the community so that the community that are now empowered through the education, the resources, can either take it forward and continue with these initiatives or ourselves or the next group of colleagues who deploy to the same community can continue with the work rather than starting from zero and trying to gather their own statistical information. So feedback is absolutely essential. But let's look back to the preparation, the pre-deployment preparation. We need to communicate. Communication is key to a successful medical mission. Communication with our own team. Who are we going to recruit? Who do we need? Who are the sponsor organisations? Who's going to coordinate the transport, the security? We must, absolutely must include the community leaders to understand the grassroots need their perception, their expectations, Uh, get some advice on security, on any cultural considerations, any gender issues, any particularly vulnerable groups. Get the community leaders on board, have them on your side so they can help with everything from translation to overcoming cultural barriers to helping you implement things in the right way at the right time. Involve the local authorities. Excuse me. You won't go very far if the local authorities are at least not aware um, and ideally have approved of and partake in the mission in some way, shape or form. Perhaps you just meet them, shake their hand, explain what you'd like to do, get the nod of approval and then maybe give them some feedback, whether it be verbally or written after the event. Uh, That's certainly the informal way of doing it. The best way of doing it is to have their stamp of approval prior to going into country and have an agreed coordination plan. And if feasible, speak to the local population, the affected population. What do they need? What do they want? What are their expectations of a foreign medical team going into the area? Are they preoccupied? Are they concerned? Have they got any particularly preformed beliefs? So once you've communicated we need to do some research we need to research the literature the statistics go online and look for any other previous medical mission reports from similar environments gather all the information so that we can start to answer our first questions what is happening what is important what can be done what will be done and how will we do it then once we've got an idea of what the mission should look like what we need, who we need, what kind of specialists do we need, then we can start to communicate to our own team. Do some participant screening. Take a full medical history, uh, get a good idea of the, the medical background of any of our participants so that it doesn't become a complication once we're in a remote area. Make sure that they've got a care plan to manage their own conditions in remote areas that may be exacerbated by extreme heat, humidity, cold, etc. Uh, and make sure they've got enough medications for the duration of the medication and any protect uh, any for the duration of the medical mission, excuse me. And then have a fudge factor, have a, an extra 
quantity of medications just for any delays in case the airport gets closed or there's any flooding or road closures or security issues which might lead you to being pinned down for a couple of days. So everybody needs to have their own medications and be self-sufficient and not be a drain on the donor's resources. We don't want people dipping into the medications that are intended for the community. We can also communicate the need for pre-trip vaccinations. Any travel health advice? Do participants need to get some chemoprophylaxis for malaria? Um, how often do they need to take it? How far in advance do they need to start it? Is it the day before, a week before, four weeks before? And then we need to have some sort of security training depending on where we're going. That might be something simple as a written communication. It could be an online forum. It could be a, a written document with simple advice about using seat belts, not walking alone at night, not displaying valuables, not displaying any, any wealth, etc., or it might be as far as a formal four to seven day heat course, hostile environment awareness training course, which puts participants through the paces, puts them into uncomfortable positions, looks at everything from climatic emergencies to defensive driving, off-road driving, negotiating checkpoints, illegal checkpoints, um, some scenario-based training, conflict management, wilderness first aid, navigation, remote area communications, empowering the humanitarian workers or the healthcare workers with the tools they need to stay safe and be able to operate safely in a remote environment. We can communicate out and focus on the epidemiology. It may be that we've got some fantastic healthcare providers, whether they be PAs, nurses, surgeons, EMTs, paramedics, you name it but they may never have worked in that environment and not be accustomed to the epidemiology. So the earlier we communicate it out, the, the sooner people can start to do their own resources, uh, the, get their own resources together, start their own research and prepare adequately to deal with the challenges they're likely to face on the ground. We'll then define objectives, have clear, repeatable, identifiable objectives so that we can measure the performance of the medical mission and provide that feedback to our team, to the sponsors, the donors, and to the community itself. Prepare the appropriate documentation, passports, medical credentials, driving licenses, travel insurance, malpractice insurance, public liability insurance, carnets, documentation to take medical equipment, um, letters to import um, drugs, etc., and then as time goes on and the planning process advances and matures, we need to keep an eye on the health alerts, security alerts, and understand the research and the changing risks and vulnerabilities, not just for the community, but also for our team. So the risks, how can we reduce the risks to our personnel, to our team, to the mission? First of all, conduct a risk assessment, whether it be your team, your team leader, or you hire a security expert to do it for you, but gather as much information as possible, identify the hazards, whether they be natural hazards, security hazards, health hazards, and identify who and how could be affected by those hazards, and therefore we can categorize the risk level. What is the risk to us, i.e. the probability and the impact 
of um, natural phenomena of an earthquake, flood, landslide, opportunist crime, organised crime, road traffic accident, vector-borne diseases, waterborne illness, oral faecal illness. How can these hazards impact us? What's the probability? What's the impact? And then we need to identify risk control measures for each identified hazard. How can we either transfer, tolerate, treat or eliminate the risks to make them as acceptable or tolerable as possible? We need to bring them right down as low as possible so they don't inadvertently or adversely affect our population. So how can we mitigate the likelihood of a road traffic accident or the impact of a road traffic accident? It might be something as simple as a defensive driving course, um, implementing speed limits, ensuring the use of seatbelts. How can we reduce the risk of malaria? Wearing long sleeve shirts, long trousers, um, boots instead of sandals, maybe a mosquito net, insect repellent, sleeping inside a mosquito net, etc. So we need to have a plan as a duty of care and to ensure the, the efficacy and the functionality of our medical mission. It's certainly not going to be effective for our population if all of our healthcare volunteers become sick within the first day. So we need to try and identify and avoid any risks. Then in the pre-deployment stage, or maybe as soon as we arrive, go through the dynamic risk assessment with the participants. So it could be the OODA loop, observe, orientate, decide, act, or it could be the dynamic risk assessment every time we move into the next phase or a new geographical location or a new situation, we're looking at the people, the objects, the environment, how they interact, how they behave. And then is there anything that jumps out, anything that creates the spider senses to tingle? Uh, and if so, we should listen to that and we should take appropriate action to try and avoid that area, to move away, to change our behavior, change our body language. But we need to identify it as early as possible, uh, decide what to do and then act upon it. Don't wait for the risk to affect us. We should consider hiring professional drivers and rent reliable vehicles, not just hire the first minibus that we see at the airport, which might have a flat tyre, may not have the, the relevant tools, the seat belts might not work, the driver might be drunk. So there's probably the biggest risk to most operations throughout the developing world is road traffic accidents, whether it be from our own drivers or from third parties, but we can minimise that risk by employing or contracting professional drivers with safe vehicles. Create standard operating procedures for safe travel, for the use of alcohol, uh, dress and equipment. Dress is key. Understanding the local culture, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what might offend um, is really important. It's really important we look at that a little bit later. So risk reduction, involve the community leaders. Find out what they like, what they don't like, what is likely to be a trigger or a flashpoint within the community. What issues have affected the community in the recent past or even decades ago? Perhaps civil war affected the community years ago and the indigenous population is still wary, sceptical 
of any military personnel or anybody that's perceived to be military. So if we go in with um, khaki trousers and a desert pattern rucksack, we might be perceived as being military and might not be particularly well received. So get that information ahead of time and we can avoid any conflicts, misunderstandings, we can manage the community expectations. We can also look at employing our chemoprophylaxis, vaccines, appropriate clothing, even learning some words. Learn some of the words in the local language, either words not to say, or if somebody's talking about us and we pick up on these words, it might heighten our sense of situational awareness and we can act upon it before it becomes a problem. Or we can use some words and greetings to break down barriers, break the ice uh, and start to... Uh, generate a rapport with the local community and the actors. So what medical equipment are we likely to need? As with any wilderness medicine setting or remote or humanitarian setting, it depends. It really depends on where we're going, what the problem is, which problem we're likely to address, how far we're going from definitive care, do we need to take equipment for ourselves, for emergency response, are we going in as a disaster response team or is this a regular medical mission and we know we're going to be dealing with skin irritations and mosquito-borne illness or waterborne illness? So it really depends, but we can certainly take diagnostic equipment, lightweight cardiac monitors, maybe a 12-lead ECG, portable ultrasound is absolutely fantastic. Um, there's a shortage of antenatal care in a lot of communities so portable ultrasound might be useful, not only for OBGYN assessments, but depending on your skill set or the type of transducer you take, it could be useful for trauma, DVTs, for identifying pneumonia, which is still the biggest killer in the under five population in the developing world. Up to 15% of under fives who die, die from pneumonia. So out in these remote communities with something as simple as a wireless, handheld, Wi-Fi, convex transducer or curvilinear transducer, we can link it to a tablet, link it to our mobile phone, and very quickly we can identify lung pathology and intervene before it becomes a problem. So cardiac monitors, 12-lead electrocardiogram, portable ultrasound transducer. We might even look at taking rapid tests in tropical environments, somebody with a fever, particularly in Guatemala, they could have mosquito-borne illness. It could be Zika, chikungunya, dengue, malaria. It could be uh, waterborne parasites, could be Jardia, could be pneumonia, the whole range of viral or bacterial infections. And in this day and age, whilst the rate isn't particularly high in Guatemala at the moment, it could even be COVID-19. So by taking simple point-of-care rapid tests, we can provide an economic solution, a rapid solution for the population to identify the epidemiology and provide solutions on scene rather than transporting somebody out of their village to a public hospital or to the capital city where perhaps they don't have family, they don't have money for food, they, they can't wait in the big queues, so if we can deal with at the time, at the point of care, providing an economic and rapid solution, not only can we help the community and reduce the economic burden, we can maximise the use of our resources 
and potentially don PPE where it's required and reduce the exposure of our healthcare providers. So rapid tests um, could be urine tests, could be malaria tests, even add a troponin test for any myocardial infarction. Emergency medications, you just need to prepare for everything. We may have a a parent presenting with a a 10-year-old child, as we had on the last medical mission, who's bleeding from every orifice, and it's apparent that he's got hemorrhagic dengue, didn't have a palpable radial pulse, was barely conscious, uh, and needed to be resuscitated. Or it could be that there's been an accident on the farmland and somebody's got a a large laceration from a machete or road traffic accident, snake bites, spider bites, scorpion stings, cardiac arrhythmias, hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia. You, It's like a box of chocolates at a medical mission. You really don't know what's going to happen. And on the emergency side, you need to prepare for everything. On the primary care side, then we may take some generic medications, but most of the medications should be geared towards the pre-trip research and the, the identified needs. There's no point taking boxes and boxes and boxes of medications for conditions and pathology that we're just not going to see it's a waste of time it's a waste of money Uh, we're not going to be able to provide the best care possible and it's probably going to cost us to ship the medications out so that's not best practice for the donor or the beneficiaries other equipment uh, we we certainly want to take ppe full ppe as we're seeing these days with covid19 because we don't know if we're going to arrive during an outbreak of cholera, TB, COVID, meningitis. We need to be prepared to protect our guys from everything. Personal hygiene items, hand washing items, alcohol gels, soap, uh, moist towels, anything. You really don't know what the uh, bathroom facilities are going to be like. and You need to be able to clean your hands between patients. Tables and chairs, sourced toilets, identify suitable facilities and maybe even create some educational posters in advance perhaps you've got access to a power source and a portable uh, powerpoint projector and you can give it a lecture but really a cheap solution such as a poster campaign stick it on the wall in the communities community center give the community um, a talk five minute talk broken down into different age groups or gender groups So they're more likely to interact and be receptive to the information and then leave it there so people can walk past in their daily routine and read it and recap and refresh and and remind the kids, etc. So poster campaigns are great. It's a really economical way of transmitting a message in a sustainable way. Personal equipment so that we're comfortable. Uh, You may have a hotel as your base. You may have a remote camp. It's likely that you'll be sleeping somewhere near the community if it's going to be a prolonged medical mission. That may be in a tent, maybe in your host's uh, spare bedroom, could be in a hammock with a mosquito net. Who knows? Whether you're prepared to stay in the field or you're preparing to go back to the hotel or the airport that night, be prepared for delays. Always have your bug out bag or your 72 hour emergency bag just in case. Murphy's Law will probably strike and it's likely that there'll be a landslide and the road will be cut off and you can't get back to the hotel or there's a security issue and the police have locked down the main road or there'll be a medical emergency and you decide to stay an extra night to help out the community. 
maybe employ some critical care, prolonged field care. Who knows? It may be there's a sudden freak rainstorm and the road is flooded or the road's collapsed or you get a puncture. But have the resources in your bug out bag or your 72 hour bag to be self-sustaining, to to be self-sufficient for three days so that you don't then become a drain on the central resources or worse still, the community resources. So you might want to have in a probably a 30 to 40 litre rucksack, PPE for yourself, alcohol gel, a mosquito head net, maybe a hammock, maybe a roll mat or a camping mat to insulate yourself from the ground, whether it be from the heat, the cold, the mud, long trousers and long sleeved shirt to protect yourself from the biting insects in the early morning and late at night, sunscreen, insect repellent, sun hat, sturdy shoes. We don't want to be walking around remote areas of the jungle or by the riverside at night with sandals on. Aside from mosquito bites, you could suffer from scorpion stings, spider bites, snake bites, and that'll certainly ruin your trip. So have good sturdy shoes. Have a headlamp so you can see where you're walking at night. If it's a particularly dense jungle with lots of beasties, then maybe get a Nalgene bottle and you can... uh, do what you need to do inside the bottle and empty it in the morning instead of walking around in the brush at night. Have a personal first aid kit with not only medications for your ongoing conditions or chronic conditions or current illness, but also everyday items such as antiemetics, headache tablets, um, maybe some Imodium for diarrhea, all the kind of things that you might encounter on the road. So that way you're not going to sap the central resources or take away medications that are designed for the community. Communications. It may be we're operating in areas where there is no phone signal. There aren't many places in the world these days that don't have phone signals, but most of our medical missions are in those areas. So we like to take a satellite phone or maybe a satellite messenger, something like an InReach, Garmin InReach or an Iridium Go. That will allow us to send text messages to send our location, to send SOS reports, to track our location. And with the Iridium Go, we can link it to our cell phone and uh, and use that for satellite voice calls or even sending emails. So it's important that we have communication with the base camp, maybe with the airline to change our flights, with the authorities to get any additional support in the event of an emergency or a security situation. Uh, You might have a tracker. Maybe you've got an operations room back in your home country or in the capital of the host nation that is going to track your progress and watch for any panic button alerts, etc. That might be a standalone tracker or it might be incorporated into your cell phone application or into a satellite messenger. Charges. If you're in the field for two or three days and the community doesn't have any electricity, how will you charge those devices? Have you got an inverter that comes off the uh, the the vehicle battery, or you can use a 12-volt charger from the cigarette lighter, maybe a solar panel, a standalone solar panel, or something that's going to charge a lithium battery. Maybe you've got a wind-up charger. That can be quite tedious, but in an emergency, it will certainly work if there's no batteries. So consider how you're going to charge all of your devices. If your patient assessments are being done on pieces of paper, If it's raining, how are you going to protect that paper so you don't lose your data? If you're doing it on a tablet, 
how are you going to maintain the tablet charged? You might need a larger battery or a larger solar panel to be able to charge a tablet or a laptop versus a cell phone. Documentation, what do you need? Um, you probably need to have your flight tickets and a copy of your passport, driving license, medical credentials with you in your bug out bag so that if there's a change of plan, a change of route, a change of itinerary, you can be agile and flexible and move around and adapt your plans to the developing situation. That takes us on to cultural considerations. As we mentioned at the start, we want to deploy and give the best possible patient care to the population. And it shouldn't change from where we normally operate, whether it's hospital-based, pre-hospital-based, in our own private clinic. We should aim to give the same level of care to the affected population in a remote area, in a disaster situation. It shouldn't change. There's no excuse for it. Through appropriate planning, we can provide the same level of care. But we need to understand the population and understand that they're victims of circumstances. Okay, We shouldn't look down on the population. They are just victims of circumstances. It's probably not their fault. They're suffering from disease or malnutrition. And so we need to treat them with dignity and respect and make them feel that they're respected and they're respectable human beings. And we need to approach patient care as we would with any other population back home. Employ the local community in the medical mission. We can identify who the key players are, who the key actors are in the community. Are there any healthcare workers? Are there any teachers? Are there any logisticians? Who can we use as a partner, as one of our local partners to empower them, whether they receive a salary for it or not, or we just empower them and give them new skills and help them feel like they're contributing to the effort. But let's draw on the wealth of skills and knowledge in the community because they understand the language. They understand the cultural barriers, the religious considerations. They know what the community's been through. They know individual personalities. And to have people by our side like that is invaluable and will really springboard our care and uh, promote the best possible situation or set of circumstances. Dress appropriately. Walking down Miami Beach or on the quay in, in Liverpool with a pair of shorts and flip-flops in summer is absolutely acceptable. In other parts of the world, depending on the religion or the cultural norms, or even their recent experience with conflict, it might not be appropriate to dress the same. You may need to cover up your legs and put long trousers on, wear sober clothing uh, without any offensive logos, not wear military clothing because we could be linked or perceived to be linked to government regimes or past armed conflict or civil war. We want to dress as professionally and neutrally as possible. Perhaps the only logos we should have on are those of our sponsor or our local partners, um, but even that might not be necessary. Consider the same-sex implications. Um, it may not be accepted that opposite-sex healthcare providers um, conduct interviews or medical assessments or provide treatment, so we need to know that well ahead of time and, and look at that when we develop our team 
Languages and gestures, we mentioned a little bit about language. Each region is different, each dialect, certainly in the, the Spanish-speaking world in Latin America, every country, every region has their own dialect and, and different words. You may be fluent in Spanish, but then all of a sudden you move to a remote part of, of Guatemala, and it might be a different style of Spanish, a different dialect, or even a Mayan dialect, uh, and it might be impossible to verbally communicate with that population. So understand the language, the dialects, and gestures. One gesture with the hands or body language might mean one thing and be perfectly acceptable in Germany or France, but it might be offensive in another part of the world. So understand and try and contain the gestures or use gestures when they're appropriate and in line with the current situation so as not to cause offence. Be aware of myths and how you address them. There are lots of myths in Guatemala, in some of the remote communities. Particularly about the treatment of snake bites, the treatment of burns, etc. Everything from um, applying donkey urine to toothpaste to layers of leaves from a certain tree. There are a whole range of myths that are not based in regular mainstream literature or evidence but they are carved into local myths and folklore and for us to go in and dismiss those beliefs that have been passed down over the generations certainly could be offensive could cause embarrassment and so we, we shouldn't dismiss them but rather explain the literature and the evidence and how our Monday treatment might complement or replace or provide a better outcome uh, but there's ways and means of approaching those situations without causing offence. In general though deploying on a medical mission can be extremely rewarding, can be super fun, you meet some incredible healthcare providers, I've learned something new from every single person whether it be surgeons, paramedics, doctors, uh, the local EMT, you learn something from everybody, whether it be medical techniques, whether it be um, new publications coming out of the literature, or even just how to smile and break down barriers and gesticulate and, and just get a smile out of the patient population. And it's incredible how much you learn, but you take more away from your patients. It's not the same as talking face to face in the same language in your clinic or the back of an ambulance back home. It, it takes effort to understand the situation and to find solutions and to look for workable relationships and break down the barriers and it really is so rewarding and to get a smile from somebody in a vulnerable community that really needs help and to be able to diagnose something that's gone undiagnosed for months or a decade and to be able to make a difference is is incredibly incredibly rewarding and I would really try and promote anybody to go on a medical mission where they can, whether it's paid or unpaid as a volunteer for a faith group, for a philanthropist group, for a local NGO. Get out there and experience it, whether it be in, in Mexico, whether it be in Guatemala, in Africa. The rewards, the challenges, the opportunities to learn about yourself, about healthcare, about public health in remote environments are, are just incredible. And it'll probably lead you down the rabbit hole into a labyrinth of remote expedition, disaster, humanitarian medicine that you didn't think was possible. 
and then you start reading the literature and you just go deeper and deeper and deeper so medical missions uh, that's about it really consider the need for research consider the need for planning consider the need to have very clearly defined objectives plan around those objectives identify the risks conduct a thorough risk assessment aim to mitigate all of the risks bring the level down as low as possible through risk control measures make sure you communicate all the risks and the plans to your donors to the local leaders to the authorities to your team uh, then go and execute go and enjoy it enjoy the travel enjoy the experience enjoy the environment keep yourself safe on the roads watch out for opportunist crime don't flash valuables or cash or pink iPhones um, keep your seatbelt on don't get drunk and wander down dark alleyways by yourself and, and just prepare yourself medically read the literature understand what you're going into understand what the community needs take the right equipment take the right knowledge enjoy it but then come back and do self-reflection how did you perform what are the gaps what did you do well what can you improve on then you can do that at your organization's level and provide feedback to the organization and or the donor so that we can maximize the resources next time and go in better prepared and better serve that community with an aim of reducing vulnerability, developing resiliency, and hopefully improving their quality of life and making sure that the impact of the next natural disaster is not as profound. All the best, guys. Thanks very much for listening. As usual, um, you can contact us on Facebook, on Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine, or through Instagram, Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine, or through the SOS Facebook or website, info at sosmedicalservices.org. We are, after this pandemic, going to be running medical missions in Guatemala on the back of our coffee sales. If you'd like to come out, any level of healthcare provider is more than welcome. All we ask is that you contribute to uh, the purchase of a couple of bags of coffee, which we use to fund these medical missions. Uh, you'd be more than welcome to come out Give us a hand, help out the communities, learn something and just have a blast. We'll also tie in with Max Baldetti afterwards. If you want, we can go rafting, whitewater rafting through the jungle rivers, which, uh, which bisect or interconnect our communities. So lots to do. Travel up to Tikal, travel up to the Mayan temples, trek through the jungles, trek live volcanoes, whitewater rafting and sample the local coffee and rum. You're all more than welcome. Stay safe, guys, wherever you are. Cheers.